0: Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I'm joined today by the whole crew. We are recording live on a Thursday. If you're listening to this on a Friday, tune in in two weeks. We're going to do it again. But in the meantime, I am here with Natasha Moscarenas. Natasha, hello. Hello,
1: hello. It is so good to be back. And let me just say, we have tried to do an equity show every day of the week this week because (laughs) there's been so much news. So everyone should buckle in.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we have a couple of things to get to. Marianne actually dropped some breaking news right into the script before we started. Marianne, how are you feeling? You've been busy. (laughs) Uh,
2: Yeah, it's been a crazy week. That's really like the only way to sum it up.
0: Yeah, it's been been pretty nuts. And you'll hear about why in a second. But quickly, in case you're just tuning in, here's what we're going to run through today on the show. We have three deals of the week from Conceive, Cottage, and Tandem. Then we're going to talk about Austin. We had an event there this week. Marianne has tons of data on one of the most important and I would say burgeoning startup scenes in the United States and the world. Then we are going to talk about is this the year of the layoff? There is some news around that you may have heard of that's quite important. And we have some late breaking news we're going to bring in as well. And then we're going to wrap with something that we didn't quite get to do a shot on earlier this week, which is apparently Elon Musk now helps run Twitter. (laughs) And as you can imagine, we have no opinions about that whatsoever. (laughs) And that'll be a super non-controversial part of the show. But that's at the end. We're going to do some deals to begin with. Natasha, Conceive is in the news. Tell us what they do and why we can Yeah, so
1: Conceive is launching today. It's a digital fertility program that wants to... ...to connect families, some of the most motivated people out there... ...which are people who want to have babies... ...with each other, coaches, curriculum, and providers. And the reason I really cared about this company was the founder. So Lauren Burson was originally a partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Then she joined Weight Watchers to help the company grow past weight loss. And then she landed on, I thought, what an interesting third pivot in her career... ...which was starting a digital health company such as Conceive. And I would say like the through line between all of her stints and this company was that she believed that there was like something really special about digital communities coming together experiencing a vulnerable health issue or condition. At Weight Watchers, it was trying yeah. to lose weight. and Conceive, it's trying to have a baby when there is some sort of obstacle in the way. That's kind of what she's up to now, what she says is her life's mission.
0: So a question about this, a digital health startup, to me, sounds more like something that fits better into like, the therapy bucket. Fertility is an incredibly invasive thing, frankly, quite often. So how do they balance like the real-world requirements of fertility treatments and also the digital aspect of what the company does?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the way I've viewed it, we've been talking a lot about cohort-based classes as the way to like bring people together digitally in a way that is effective. And I don't think that Conceive is necessarily trying to physically be the people that someone comes to to start IVF. I think they're more trying to be like the accountability layer okay. on top. It's a safer place to be if you are in digital health because you're not directly doing the scientific hands-on part, but you are doing a lot of like the emotional support, which I think all of us know is like such a fragmented part. You Google your way to answers a lot, especially in women's health. And so any platform that does that, I'm usually interested
2: in in some way. Definitely full of competition though.
0: Marianne, I want to get your take here as someone who is a parent.
2: Yeah, I think- it's a very noble mission, and I think infertility is a topic that's often not discussed enough publicly, along with mm-hmm. you know, miscarriages. It's all like some sort of taboo thing where, where people feel like they have to be quiet about it, and for people going through it, that can feel very lonely. So I think your headline, Natasha, was spot on. I am curious to Alex's point, though, in your article, she said in her beta cohort, There were about 11, I guess, couples that participated and she had some statistics around the outcomes, but is it strictly a kind of emotional support thing or are they trying to help? Like, here's some things you can do to improve your chances to get pregnant or I'm just trying to understand it specifically. Yes, good question.
1: So I think that what they're trying to do is definitely, yes, help with the community aspect, but they're also connecting you to coaches so you can have experts who can answer questions about your route. They can tell you more realistic situations statistics about the efficacy of IVF or how likely you are to get pregnant when you're in your 20s which isn't that likely even though we're all taught the opposite and are kind of freaked (laughs) out about that some of us are and I think that the third layer is curriculum so more backed and vetted googling in a way which again is a lot of it's asynchronous I'll say Mm -hmm. that but I think that we're going to see them try and be a little ambitious on the kind of advice and expert advice that people get when they join that's
0: Mm -hmm. super great I mean having spent the last couple years going through this it's been really nice to have a community around us, as my wife and I have kind of gone through IVF and so forth. But I don't think everyone has such ready access to friends that have gone through it. And so we've had this amazing backstop, but that's not the norm. And so building that for more people, given the complexity, loneliness, concern, and stress that infertility brings is is great. Yeah, I think it's a very positive human thing.
1: Yeah. The last thing I'll add about Conceive, and it kind of gets to what you're saying, Alex, which is like not everyone works for a company that's going to offer them fertility benefits. And I think the good thing about a company that's trying to be more of an accountability layer is it's only going to stay a company if it actually works. Mm -hmm. It's D2C. The feedback is more direct than if your employer was representing your needs. I guess I have faith that it will be held accountable because it has to be in order for its survival. And I'm such a fan of companies that are going direct to people versus the people that are lucky enough Mm -hmm. To have insurance benefits at an employer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. makes sense. Exactly. I mean, it's expensive, but let's see what happens there.
0: Yeah. It's incredibly expensive. But we have to move on. Marianne, you picked the deal of the week as cottage, which I believe is all about saying or bidding adieu to a lack of density in urban environments or suburban environments. I butchered my own (laughs) joke. Dang it. Oh, I had that all planned. It took me a
2: minute to get that, but that was a good one.
1: Oh, you didn't get the soft launch in the pre-show. He soft launched uh, his joke. It was better this time,
2: though. I think like... (laughs) It was great. How was
1: it better? <laughs> but I stumbled all over
0: it twice. Um, Anyways, Mary Cottage, no, I'm sorry. What's going all? on? Um,
2: so Cottage, Cottage wants to make it easier for homeowners to build ADUs or accessory dwelling units in their backyards. ADUs can be used for a variety of things. Some people use them to work out of, have a home office, especially now with so many people working from home. More commonly, especially in very expensive markets like the Bay Area, people use them to like rent out to say students or, yeah. or people who don't need a ton of space. And so that way, they're kind of helping address the lack of affordable housing issue. And at the same time, earning income themselves. And that's how the founder, Alex and Sarneki he came up with the idea because his parents who'd lived in the Bay Area for a long time decided they wanted to build an ADU. His dad was retired. And then it was like a year long nightmare process trying to to get permitted and, you know, designing and all that. So he was like, hmm, there's got to be a better way. He started the company. So Cottage actually is a marketplace that teams homeowners up with contractors. So basically, Cottage will go through all the painful parts of the process, helping you get your permit design, you can custom design it doesn't have to be some cookie cutter thing, and then match you with a contractor who's supposedly been vetted. And then the contractors like not having to do much work, but just is kind of handed over a customer and then then it goes from there. So it's an interesting model. I've covered about at least four different startups over the past year that are actively involved in the construction of ADUs in one form or another one does like 3d printing, there's a lot of different. Companies out there tackling this problem or this issue. I think
1: one area that we don't talk about enough on the show at all is prop tech. I mean, I was really excited to see Cottage for that reason. And I'm wondering if, since you've been covering it for so many years, if you're seeing things get more tech heavy and less construction heavy. Um, I feel like that was like always my biggest question when we see real estate dependent startup growth.
2: Yeah, and I think there's always been a question with companies that are related to real estate as to whether it's really a tech company or is it a real estate company. We went through this with WeWork.
1: Yes, trust issues for sure. There, right, right. So uh, in the case
2: of this company, which interestingly this round was led by Fifth Wall, one of the biggest real estate prop tech investors in the world. Fifth Wall also backed another company called Homebound that also does a very similar thing. When they call it tech enabled home building, so that's kind of how they're describing it as tech enabled, and they're using. Tech in a variety of ways to make the process easier, less painful. So I think you're right. Construction tech is a whole other segment of the prop tech world. True. So yeah, this is this is more prop. Can tech. I
0: jump in on sure. that? So construction tech is like Proterra and people that do like software for I mean, the construction not, world. Is my yeah. Read.
2: I mean, my opinion is yeah. There's a lot of companies out there trying specifically to address making construction more efficient, helping contractors get paid faster, you know, making the workflow smoother, that sort of thing. So I wouldn't necessarily put this in the construction tech category, although it kind of could, it can overlap, right? It can overlap because it does involve contractors.
0: But the, the point is here, they raised $15 million and they're going to help you find contractors to help you get your ADU built in a reasonable time frame. Right. Do we know like what the price range is for these things? Because yeah. I don't know, but I, I'm bullish on the idea. But I'm just not sure how accessible they are. Do you need a home equity loan to build one, or is it cheaper?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. And I don't think I asked Alex that, which I need to. So thanks for the reminder. In the past, when I have reported on this, I was told that they are like a couple hundred thousand, 300,000. Range even so, Ooh, which sounds okay. like quite a lot to most of us. But in comparison to housing prices in the Bay Area, it's <laughs> true. It's very li- it's, <laughs> it seems very little. But I don't know for sure about cottage.
0: That's a good point. Why does it cost two times the house of a single family home in Ohio to build an ADU in California? Well,
2: because it's California. I mean, the median home price in I think the San Jose Santa Clara area is like what one four million. Yeah. But that's because of a
0: limited supply, right? If we're going to build more stuff, don't we just need like nails,
2: plywood? I mean, why does this cost so much? Yeah. It's all kind of crazy, but either way, it seems like there's demand for it. They're growing. There are certain cities that have eased laws around ADUs that have made, I think that's part of why so many startups are cropping up in this space, California being one of them, but cottage is looking to expand to other markets throughout this year, including it's already in LA and wants to go to San Diego.
1: I want first. to end the section by asking about Fifth Wall because this is the only prop tech investor that I see doing things. Am I wrong in only seeing Fifth Wall
2: <laughs> yeah. active or is there other ones out there? No, there are others, but I think they are just one of the most active and most vocal about what they do. But there are others. There are, you know, even like commercial real estate brokerage, Jones Lang LaSalle has its own venture arm. There's brick and mortar ventures. It's focused specifically on construction tech for the most part. So there are others, but I think they're one of the most active and higher profile.
1: Well, let's move from the physical world to the virtual world, Alex. You're going to tell us about Tandem doing something, <laughs> doing something virtual.
0: <laughs> I'm going to keep this really brief. I want to roll the clock back to late 2019. Y Combinator, there was a company coming out called Tandem, Tandem.chat, and it was the hottest thing out there. It raised some money. People were like, oh my gosh, you know, it's just launching. It's raised, I think, $7, 8000000 million, something like that. And then amazingly enough, the pandemic hit. And so Tandem's work on kind of like remote communications was right place, right time. And then we didn't hear from them for a bit. And I kind of forgot about them because there were so many companies doing things. I would occasionally email the CEO and be like, Hey, how's growth going? So I'm sure he loved those emails every six months for me. (laughs) But now the company has a new product out. Yeah, but yeah, Mm -hmm. I think I probably got the same response that investors get, which is this. Silence. (laughs) No, the company, I did talk to them recently. They launched a new product called Spaces. And what it is is a way to connect the tandem you know, app on your computer to the physical space in an office. So imagine that if you had like, you know, those TVs they have in like every conference room or main space at a startup, imagine if those were accessible by people in the tandem application. So I could click on like lounge, click, and I could like put myself onto that screen and take part in the conversation that's going on in that room ambiently or drop into a conference room. It essentially is a way to connect remote workers to physical spaces. Mm -hmm. So that way the gap between the two is crossed. And I'm optimistic about this. I think it's really cool. I got to kind of zip around the Tandem office and drop in on their meetings like some sort of weird creeper. I was invited, to be clear, but it was strange. It was like, hi, I don't work here. How are you guys doing? That is cool. And so, yeah, I love to see innovation in this space. We need to move on because we're short on time, but Tandem, it's cool. And now we're going to scoot on to Austin, Marianne, your lovely city where we had an event this week. First of all, how did the event go and what did you do?
2: I think it went really well. We had a virtual event and we had several panels, including a pitch-off. One, I moderated a panel about early stage investing in the city. But yeah, I live here for those who don't know. So Austin for years has been kind of talked about as this emerging tech hub. You know, I used to write about it at Crunchbase News. And then in the past year or so, Austin and Miami have kind of been in the headlines for the places to move, you know, especially during the pandemic the lower cost right. than the coast, lots to offer. Yeah. and active startup scenes. So a lot of that was talk, I think. But now we're seeing numbers to back it up. Like VCs invested over $5.5 billion across 412 deals in 2021. That's more than double the amount invested in 2020. So wow. that's a pretty significant jump and some validation that we're definitely seeing growth here. It's a maturing market. I think all of the top 10 deals were over $100 million. I wrote a very long piece where I interviewed a lot of investors that are based here and some founders and... And got their take on a number of things, such as why is Austin really this awesome tech hub? Why you shouldn't compare it to Silicon Valley? And also acknowledging that while there's been a lot of growth and the city is cool, there are some challenges that it's still grappling with, such as a lack of diversity.
0: But Houston, a nearby city in Texas, is one of the most diverse cities in the nation. So I'm curious, why is Austin becoming more homogenous while Houston is so diverse?
2: Yeah, I think that's a good question. And it almost, it seems, it's a little confusing because Austin's seen as the most progressive city in Texas. Houston is largely seen as more conservative. Yeah. But when you look at the population and the demographics, you know, Austin is really lacking in diversity. I think our Black population has been decreasing. And it was about 7% a couple of years ago. So wow you know if you I really don't know why this is I don't know I just know that there is definitely a diversity problem if you've ever visited here you can see it I think Alex even commented on it when he was here a few years ago Uh, I would like to see more of it I did talk to Preston James who started an accelerator focused on helping underrepresented founders get money and while he feels like there's been progress made he feels like there's still a long way to go
1: I want to kind of Take a step out and walk for people who maybe had only thought of Austin as the place that rich VCs moved to during the pandemic. Walk them through like <laughs> the phases of Austin over the past few years. Mm-hmm. What's phase one and what phase are we at now, Marianne? Yeah,
2: I mean, Austin for a long time was known for like software, largely enterprise software. And then it's slowly been expanding. Like there's a lot of real estate tech, there's an insure tech, there's a burgeoning crypto web three scene here. So we're expanding in terms of hot sectors. And yeah, a lot of VCs moved here. Jim, Jim breyer john lonsdale jeff lewis among others either opened an office here or relocated another big thing that's happened to austin is that a very large number of the biggest tech companies in the world have set up campuses here that are significant apple amazon facebook google oracle moved its headquarters here ibm has a big presence so all these tech companies here are bringing a lot more talent to the area which is also spawning wannabe founders as well
0: Yeah, but I'm curious about the talent question because people talk about how hard it is to hire in Silicon Valley. We know that there's been kind of net migration towards Texas and also Austin across the U.S. So Miriam, when we think about the big companies moving in, startups being founded and talent moving there, how does that net out in terms of how competitive the domestic local talent market is? Is it super competitive or is it Um, not as bad as say Silicon Valley?
2: You know, I don't know 100% the answer to that question. I would imagine it's still competitive, but I read an article recently that I think it was software engineers here can command like the highest salaries in the nation. So I feel like it's it's still, it is really competitive here. And it's a lot more expensive to live here than people think. I mean, it's not as expensive as Silicon Valley, but like <laughs> relatively speaking, a couple of years ago, the median house price here was 300,000 or something like that. Now it's about 500,000. So part of the problem with this growth though, is that it's pricing out a lot of people. It's pricing out a lot of businesses who've had to shut down. They can't afford to pay property taxes or high rents. And they're getting replaced by shinier, kind of more cookie cutter establishments which leads some of us to worry that the city is losing the charm that gave it the slogan, keep Austin weird. So there's that struggle okay. of keeping the weird and charm of Austin while it's growing a lot. That's kind of the phase we're at. All right.
0: I'm going to, I have to protest. I'm going to complain for a minute. Sure. The whole keep Austin weird thing is the most annoying cliche in the United <laughs> States. Do you know what they say in Portland, Oregon? Keep Portland weird. Do you know what they say here in Providence, Rhode Island? Keep Providence (laughs)
2: weird. That's so funny. We all can't
0: be weird in the same way. Yeah. Like, I, I hate that. Also, downtown Austin looks like San Jose. So like, it's not weird, nor is it funky.
2: I agree. I don't think Austin is at all weird anymore. Like 20 years ago, I went to graduate school here. It was definitely a little more weird. It was a lot more bohemian, laid back. It was the place where people could go to just kind of let loose and not feel like they were being judged. Tattoo parlors all over the place, live music, bands playing everywhere. It's really kind of buttoned up. And I agree, Alex, I wouldn't call the city weird anymore. Don't
0: worry, we still have New Orleans.
2: Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. I mean, I think that answers the question perfectly. We're at the stage of Austin being not weird anymore. And the last question, I guess this is for either of you, is how would we compare Austin to like Miami? Like where it's at in terms of its maturation as a startup scene? Are we past Miami? Are we
2: in a different world than Miami? (laughs) Alex, what do you think? I have thoughts, but would love to hear what you think.
0: All right, I'll jump on that grenade first. I think unlike Miami, Austin is an actual technology scene versus the fever dream of a couple of bored venture capitalists who don't like California anymore after they've made all their money there.
2: We're getting canceled today
0: <laughs> How is that controversial?
2: I'm just kidding. No, I mean, I think I haven't been there in many years, but I do feel like when you think of Miami right now, you think about crypto, you think about Web3. Outside of that, I'm not really hearing about a lot of other tech happening. So I'm not diminishing the fact that it's kind of this emerging tech hub. I've talked to at least two founders in the past few months who have moved there in the fintech world, but not necessarily in the crypto space. But I am curious to see how this plays out over time, you know, because right now crypto is really, really hot. And we'll see if this will sustain.
0: I mean, Miami is kind of the Mar-a-Lago of the venture capital world. It feels like there's more VCs than founders. And it's just people who kind of want to virtue signal that they're post-California, if you will. Whereas if you look <laughs> at Austin, it. just kind of pulling from area and story, if I can for a second, Next Coast Ventures raised $310 million across three funds. S3 Ventures put together a quarter billion dollar fund seven. And that was, I think, the largest VC fund ever put together, just focused on Texas startups. And there's a bunch of other firms that have also raised a lot of capital. So to me, Austin's scene is very material.
2: Yeah, it's a good point. It
0: has both big and small. Yeah. in Miami's sinking.
2: <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Into the ocean. Live Oak raised $210 million last year, and they did that in like four months, they said. They raised it in four months, and that was their third fund. You know, to be fair, Austin, you know, it's not an overnight success. This has been building right. for years. It's just now getting really the headlines, and with people moving here during the pandemic really amplifying it and bringing it more to the surface. But this has been going on for years. It's not like all of a sudden we've become a tech hub. And to Austin's credit, because I don't want to sound too negative, the city is beautiful. There are two major lakes. Lakes, lots of hills and lots of greenery. It's a fairly clean and safe city for the most part, although we grapple with a, a very sad homelessness problem. But but it's not a bad city and I didn't mean to make it sound as such. It just needs some more diversity.
0: No, no, <laughs> all, yeah, Austin's great. I once got high and bicycled across this weird bridge and got some strange donuts. I ended up behind this huge group of like Christians from Texas. It was hysterical. Like I had a great time in Austin.
1: Barbecue's I mean good. backyard is like better than most states in the totality. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> it's I stunning love it where we live.
2: I have to say I love it. So, you know, also pretty awesome. Yeah. Totally. I'm here
1: for it. So there is, I think we're starting to see around the whole startup ecosystem right now, struggles for some companies. Marion, you also covered WorkRise. Mm-hmm. And if people can't tell,
2: Marianne's been very busy this week just based on how much <laughs> we're making her talk today. Yeah, sorry to people are <laughs> no, tired of hearing. Of we me. love it. WorkRise is a company based in Austin. One of the number of unicorns that are here now that I actually don't think I mentioned that we have a lot more unicorns than we used to. Unfortunately, it did have to lay off, I think over the past week or so. They did not confirm how many people laid off, but I heard it was in the hundreds. So oh, wow. yeah, they were valued at $2.9 billion last year. I
1: mean, wow. Pandemic impact as a reason for layoffs is surprising to me, I will say, because I think we saw that reasoning year one Maybe year two.
2: Yeah. But in this case, it's it's a little different because I think the company, which was focused more on oil and gas, trying to help skilled workers find jobs, then it tried to expand out of oil and gas. And I think it raised a lot of money last year based on that planned expansion. But apparently that didn't go so well. Ah. So it's now trying to divest and get rid of some of those verticals that it was expanding into, which I think just didn't work out. And it's actually returning back to its oil and gas roots because it used to be called Rig Up.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Uh, Because of oil rigs, I presume? Right. Right. That's my deep knowledge of the oil and gas industry right there.
1: (laughs) I'm like, that makes sense.
0: (laughs) <laughs> I watched like three YouTube videos on how those work. I, yeah, you know, I can talk about it. But the layoffs at WorkRise, which raised $300 million at a $2.9 billion valuation last year, are not the only layoffs that we have seen from companies that have been very well capitalized and had reached really material scale, which brings us to essentially the breaking news of the show. Marianne was actually a few minutes late to our uh, prep and, and so forth before we went live because she was finishing yeah. typing furiously. Yet another scoop on better.com. And Marianne, we're going to make you read the headline because we love it.
2: So please. Okay. And I have to credit Zach Whitaker for pretty much coming up with the headline. 100%. He helped co-write. We probably, this is in quotes, we probably pissed away $200 million Better.com CEO told employees in layoffs meeting. Ugh. Yeah, just
1: just to contextualize for everyone. And if you've been paying attention to equity, you know the better.com saga, but we have a piece up actually that goes through the entire timeline. This quote and the story that Marion just published is a recap of the conversation that Better.com CEO Vishal Garg had when he first laid off about 9% or 900 employees. So we finally kind of have the how a CEO kind of directly talks to staff when they do such a gutting sort of decision, which I feel like is just very,
2: very rare. To be clear, this was a meeting that took place after the actual laying off of the employees. This was to addressing the employees that were still there. But it happened the same day and it was right after. And it's a 12-minute video that TechCrunch obtained. and it's pretty scandalous. Like, the things that Vishal Garg is seen and heard as saying pretty much admits to overhiring, to clearly spending way too much money, says he lacked self-discipline in overhiring and spending, and kind of made veiled... I don't know if threats might be too strong of a word, but kind of, you know, said that the people that laid off, a lot of them were unproductive. They figured that out through the use of technology and that anybody else that would be bringing on would suffer the same fate if found to be unproductive, that they would be exited. And his tone, (laughs) like the tone of his voice, it's just like, yeah. It's exactly what you would have expected after you heard everything you've heard. And I've had countless former employees tell me things about his manner and the way he talked to employees. But to actually see and hear it myself was pretty crazy.
1: And this really came after days earlier, you wrote a story about Better.com offering severance and health insurance to employees who voluntarily resign. I guess timeline-wise, this was a few months ago. But I mean, how far are we from seeing Better.com shutting down altogether? Because it feels like that is basically saying we are shutting down without shutting down. Yeah. I mean,
2: I think that's probably the natural evolution of what's happening with the company. There were the 900 person layoffs in December, another layoff in March of 3100 people. Now, this is about a month later and the company told corporate executives and product design and engineering employees that they could voluntarily resign, they would get 60 days severance and health insurance coverage if they did. And then I was told by multiple sources that the company is losing about $50 million a month. So, at this rate, clearly, you know, I think they didn't want to do another round of forced layoffs, so they tried they are choosing this route of, hey, you can leave and we'll give you two months severance and health insurance coverage, which is maybe not such a bad strategy. But I do feel like it's a signal that things are really, really not going well. And I wouldn't be surprised if something does happen. I will say this, though. I have heard from also a number of employees that the core technology that Better.com built is actually quite good, despite (laughs) the fact that its leadership has up a lot of things over the years, the core technology that the company built is valuable. So there may be some opportunity to sell that technology to another company or something like that. But I wouldn't be surprised if we hear better.com actually shutting its doors in the relatively near future. And speaking of companies doing that fast.
0: Wow. I just, I feel bad because it's very hard to compete with $50 million a month in losses and I'm just bummed out that Fast's shutdown only involved $10 million per month in losses. Because compared to 50, that's quite modest. It feels relatively conservative. But yes, after really, I think one of the more intense leak periods we've seen from a well-funded startup in some time, Fast, the one-click online checkout company, has shut down. And this comes after a number of reports discussing its very, very minimal 2021 revenue. The information reported that number to be about $600,000, which is effectively zero if you've raised over $100 million. And the company's implosion was an interesting moment, I, I would say, Natasha, in social media, because there's been two contrasting views. One is schadenfreude. Scheiden, Scheiden, I can't pronounce this word. The, the German word for enjoying suffering in someone else. How have you pronounced
2: that word? <laughs> oh, yeah. Does anyone
0: know how to yeah. pronounce it? No,
2: sure. no, but I know what you're talking about.
1: <laughs>
0: I can sure. spell it. I just can't say it. And then some people are saying we shouldn't criticize the company. Natasha, where did you come down on that, uh, those two sides?
1: It's weird. I mean, we we had that Wednesday episode this week about failure and just how complicated it can be from and making sure we're not over drawing to certain people or reasons as to why a startup failed. But I will say it is surprising to see Fast take such a dramatic step shutting down altogether than having what we've seen with better.com, this like very slow drip of struggles. I feel like that was like a first that I've seen. I mean, first is probably wrong, but the dramatic end is rare compared to what we've seen in the past few months and what I'm sure we'll see in the next few months, because a lot of them have venture capital bubbles around them. But with Fast, you know, the CEO did say basically in a letter to employees that we ran out of money, we explored raising, we explored all these things, but we can't, so we are shutting down.
0: Well, the difference between the two companies is that Better.com rode this enormous wave of refinancing interest when interest rates were low and people expected them to rise. And so the company's business results boomed. If you go back to its area, its back deck, mm-hmm. the company was pretty bullish on its space. It was doing lots of business. It had a reason to have an right. enormous staff. It was a material enterprise. Then rates rose, refinancings tanked, and the company's business, it kind of evaporated out from underneath it. Right. In the case of Fast, it never had a business underneath it. It That's just had true. a bunch of hoodies and some annoying tweets, which turns yes. out isn't a business, shockingly. Well, yeah
1: <laughs> It's kind of funny I mean Marianne brought up how Better.com's like core business is pretty good according to some employees but when I was reporting about a part of the deal with the shutdown was that vast majority of the engineers would be given offers at a firm a fintech in the buy now pay later space it was kind of funny how specific a firm was about not acquiring the technology <laughs> of fast not going anywhere near the technology in fact <laughs> but wanting the employee and talent so it wasn't an acqui actually mm-hmm. and I think that really speaks to like a firm which also in the checkout space had nothing to do with it and that's not me trying to make fun of it it's just me kind of showing the difference in these mm-hmm. two very mm-hmm. stark mm-hmm. struggle struggling newses. that's a good point news is not a word but <laughs> i love it i
2: love <laughs> news stories no, but, you're, but you're right and i think that's true i think fast really was overly ambitious and clearly spent way more than it should have and didn't have the results to show for it and i guess it just decided hey we're just gonna cut our losses. And that's what it did.
0: Yeah. Before we move on to the Elon Musk Twitter saga, if you will. I just want to point out that some people are saying don't criticize fast, but someone had a really good piece of commentary I wanted to bring up, which is that they said, look, we should criticize this ridiculous company because so many women and people of color can't raise money because they don't have enough, quote, traction. And yet this company raised, you know, nine figures with effectively no revenue. So yeah, calling out the inequity in the venture capital market and startup space is a good use of time. Also, I think criticism and mockery of ridiculous things is useful. It's not being overly rude when someone else did the silly thing, pointing out that it's silly is somewhat secondary to the main act and I'll die on that hill. Speaking of dying on hills, apparently Elon Musk was not posting when he decided that Twitter <laughs> needs help and uh, Twitter's going to die on that hill. So where to Dude. begin with this one, guys?
2: Unbelievable.
1: <laughs> Alex, let me just say I am blaming you because okay. a few months ago you wrote a piece about how you want more drama on in tech and in tech Twitter. Oh, and then that's right. Ever since, <laughs> ever since we've jinxed the category of fintech. There has been only tech drama. I feel like Equity is the podcast you want to listen to because we're just going to throw out these statements and then they're going to age very, very interestingly. But um, yeah, I mean, this week I feel like Elon kind of went from mocking Twitter, kind of wanting to build the next one, to then taking nearly 10% of it, Mm -hmm. to then taking a board seat, Mm -hmm. and to where we are today, I guess, promising that they're working on an edit button, and Twitter, in fact, confirming that they've been working on an edit button. So it's just so many kind of bingo boards
2: all clashing together. First thing that I thought of was, if you can't beat them, join them. And I feel like that's what happened here, is that Elon recognized that you know he talked about starting his own social network, maybe realized that was a really dumb idea, and since he can't (laughs) defeat Twitter join it. And that's exactly what he did.
0: Yeah. There's some nuance to this though, because he announced on Monday via an SEC filing that he had purchased, it was about 2.9 billion, I think in Twitter stock or roughly a 9.2% of the company, if my memory serves, Mm -hmm. and he's going to be a passive stake, which is a distinction that matters. And then, you know, 12 minutes passed and he was like, oh, JK, I'm joining the board and I'm actually going to be an activist (laughs) investor. And there are rules about this And, and they seem to have been abrogated. I do seem to think that Elon Musk has managed to build not a reality distortion, you know, sphere around him as people said about Steve Jobs, but instead kind of like a regulatory keep it away from me bubble. Like, how does he do this consistently and get away with it? Yeah. It's amazing to me. But Twitter stock went up, so that's nice.
1: Yeah. I'm kind of confused here because we know that Elon has gotten in trouble for changing the price of Tesla stock because of his tweets. And so now, now, is he going to change the Twitter stock because of his tweets? I feel like there's more room for like mm. mistakes mm-hmm. in the Elon world. But I don't know if that's even illegal because he's not the CEO.
0: What what know. counts as legal and what Elon Musk can do and not get in trouble for, I think are different things. Totally. In the case of, of Tesla stock, he tweeted out like about taking Tesla private at $420 per share because we're all 12 And he said funding secured when it wasn't. That would have actually ironically been one of the better investments of all time because Tesla stock has appreciated greatly since then. But in this case, he announced it in a reasonable manner, which is through a filing. And the reaction to that Uh, is what the market did, which was excitement. Right. And I think that's okay. But I also wish that I could make a billion dollars in about three days just by buying some stock in a company. Because whenever I buy index funds, nothing happens. (laughs)
1: quite sad. I know it would be great to be a market mover. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Actually, I'm glad I'm not because that really, that means whenever I tweet, I don't have to care about it. You know what I mean? My, my tweets don't do shit. my tweets. Are pretty boring and it's nice to be a nobody. No, they're entertaining,
2: though. They're entertaining, Alex.
1: There's like the light reaction to Elon getting involved in Twitter and like the normal sorts of jokes we'll make about it. But then there's also
2: a little bit of a more serious take we should probably
1: give some time to, which is like, what does it mean for someone who, you know, really wants an edit button and has questionable positions on free speech to get involved with one of the most powerful social media platforms? And how does that also line up with Twitter definitely prioritizing revenue growth, wanting to grow with daily users? and being in a spot where it wants Elon Musk to take a board seat. Elon Musk is not a neutral rich person. Yeah, I don't know if any rich person is neutral, but he's definitely the least neutral you can go. And so I do think we're seeing Twitter show some of its vulnerability. We're seeing Elon get involved in a serious way that some people have been really worried about, but I I guess I'm just thinking that there was nothing stopping him before and there's nothing that will stop him now from having the impact he wants to have. So I don't know. That's just something that I want to remind people is like it kind of is fraught that we're seeing something so dramatic happen and I'm wanting to have corporate influence in this way. I feel like that's kind of insane.
2: I think yeah. it's insane. And I think what's even more insane is that even though we were surprised, we weren't that surprised, right? <laughs> it's yeah. not as shocking as it should have been, really. And I am surprised, though, that we actually didn't see this one coming.
0: I didn't see it coming because I consistently underestimate Elon's enjoyment of shit posting in various forms. Not always in the form of tweets, sometimes in the form of actions. I think this is one of those things. And shout out to him for having fun. Going back to my piece that I wrote in defense of technology drama back in January, turns out, I just pulled that up. <laughs> okay, um,
1: perfect. <laughs> I, I think
0: it is good to have fun. I just, I think that we need to expand our aperture a little bit and have a wider expectation of what's coming. The thing that I struggle with here is that Elon in late March was talking about how, you know, Twitter is the town square, needs to be more open, needs to be more free speechy. All right. And yet, Elon has like sued employees and he sued Top Gear once over a review they did of an early Tesla car. And so he's shown a willingness to attack people's speech. And then on the other hand, he's like free speech. And so to me, there's a little bit of inconsistency there that I think belies a lack of seriousness on his part, which makes me wonder what he actually wants to do with Twitter because he already has some other jobs,
1: I think. Yeah, yeah. I think you summed it up perfectly, Alex, in that we will probably definitely be seeing Twitter branded SpaceX rockets in the near future um, all over, all over the world. So that's where we're leaving.
0: (laughs) I was trying to figure out what was this deal for other than Elon's enjoyment. And so I was thinking maybe Twitter branding on SpaceX rockets would help, but I don't think too much. I'll just say this. If Elon left Twitter, it wouldn't really bother me. And I think he was smart to not leave because I don't think you can build your own social network around one person. As we've learned from former President Donald Trump repeatedly. (laughs) Yes. It turns
1: Indeed. out. Didn't uh, know. We haven't had Trump's name on the show in so long. That almost felt like triggering, but um, <laughs> I guess we're here.
0: <laughs> can, can we give Amanda a shout out? Amanda Sulering from the TechCrunch team who's been covering this particular saga for a while. Amanda's yes. fantastic. Some of the best headlines, I think, in like in recent TechCrunch history. And she's brought such a good level of energy to us. And she is helping, to paraphrase Austin, keep TechCrunch weird. <laughs>
2: Yeah, she's amazing. 100%. Yeah, her headlines are amazing.
0: (laughs) And guys, I think at that point, we should stop talking and wrap this up. So Natasha, Marianne, thank you. Thank you for everyone who tuned in live with us. We're going to pivot over to do some Q&A in a second off the recording. But hugs, we'll be back on Monday. Bye.
1: Bye. Bye.